everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we have a wonderful show planned for you today. We have, of course, a bad nurse story that uh, we're going to talk about always, thought-provoking, interesting, and that sort of thing. But we have a really inspiring, although a little heartbreaking, good nurse story. We want to honor a nurse who literally sacrificed her life to save someone else. And then we're going to end the show with our new satire news segment that we started, which I think is a lot of fun. It's satire, so please remember that it is supposed to be a funny article, to keep that in mind. Already done this one time and already getting emails about it, but it's okay. I understand. <laughs> I understand it's uh, sometimes hard to catch on to something, you know, when it's not real obvious that it's supposed to be funny, but just keep in mind it is supposed to be funny. But it is supposed to also incite some serious conversation afterwards about about the topic. So we'll, we'll definitely do that. Today's article is entitled Research Evidence Links Patient Outcomes to Whiteboards. So I know, um, I know I never realized how important they were, but today we're apparently going to find out what the research is showing. So stick around for that. The conversation should be quite interesting. And uh, now I want to introduce uh, this week's guest host today. We have Dan Weberg, a registered nurse and head of clinical innovation from Trusted Health, the nurse travel agency. Welcome, Dan. So glad to have you back. Hey, Tina. I'm excited to dive into another story, and I love the satire piece. I was looking at that and thinking whiteboards are the, like the number one topic on Instagram memes for nurses, and so it'll be fun to chat about that. I know. I'm, I'm excited about it, too. So I guess we can... First of all, though, I did want to announce that we do have a special guest coming up here in a couple of weeks. We're getting ready to hit 1 million downloads. And that's all thanks to you guys that are listening. We appreciate you so much. And we wanted to have something special for you. And so in a couple of weeks, hopefully right around the time that we hit that 1 million, we have a really special guest host that's coming on. Nurse Blake has agreed to come on and guest host. And we already recorded it, actually. So it's it's there and it's... um. The editors will be working on getting that ready for you. So be looking for that to come. So the bad nurse story is about a nurse by the name of Jan Sokolsky. Sokolsky, I'm not sure how to say it. Again, no one by the name of Smith or Jones ever does anything wrong. It's always people with just consonants <laughs> for names. So right. Jan and yeah, Jan and Henry were childhood sweethearts, and they were married since they were 17 and 20, respectively. Jan was a registered nurse. She practiced for over 40 years. Gosh, that's a long time. That's a long time to be a nurse. Henry was a police officer in Trenton, New Jersey for 25 years and then retired in 2003. They moved down to Palm Coast, Florida. That just sounds like, does that not just sound like the American, like very typical American, like nurse, police officer, retired, moved to Florida? I've never heard a more, yeah. you know, American <laughs> story in my life. And they, now you can headline this, a Florida woman. <laughs> of course, it's got to be a Florida woman. You know, they lived there seemingly in peace for about 13 years. But then as Henry got older, he started having more and more severe back problems. And so in early 2016, he went to the hospital several times for various back surgeries. And then not really realizing that this was going to be the case, but he was admitted on April 7th and he was never able to to go home again after that. Um, I don't know about you, Dan, but I've had, I've taken care of patient, a lot of patients who just went into the hospital for just elective surgeries and surgeries that should have probably just been routine and in and out in a couple of days. And then something just, you know, whether it was infection or 
just something just went wrong and they did not leave the hospital. And it's always so incredibly sad, you know, because it, I don't know, it just, there's something about just not expecting that and just not having that expectation. Um, And then it all just kind of going downhill. Yeah, no one expects that when you go in for a seemingly routine thing to have a have a complication, and it seems to happen, in my opinion, more often with back surgery too. Mm. That that that's one that as soon as you cut into the back, it there's all kinds of other things that happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I don't have a lot of success stories in my career around uh, around back related injuries and, mm-hmm. and surgery. It's one of those tough tough ones with lots of complications. I have to say the same thing. I think that I've seen so many people who have had back surgeries that just if if you know like at the very best just they were the same the the pain is still there the discomfort mm-hmm. the inability to to walk comfortably is you know all of that is still there after the surgery and so they went through all that risk for nothing and then of course there's all kinds of complications where they could actually be worse or you know like infections and that sort of thing so i yeah it's it's just terrible and so while recovering, Jan started acting strangely, her husband. Medical staff asked her repeatedly not to administer medications, particularly pain medications, to her husband. And this is something that sometimes people do bring their own medicines. And if you have a family member in there, it's we don't ever want to, we, we always want to advocate for patients to have their family at the bedside. It's, it's, it's been proven that outcomes are better for patients to have family at the bedside. They can almost be a second set of eyes and ears for the nurse and and they can tell you when things are not going well or if they've had a, a, a mental status change sometimes that maybe the nurse wouldn't recognize. And so I would never say that it's not a good thing to have them there, but it, there is a risk that could do something like this where, you know, they're giving medicine, they maybe even well-intentioned, like oh, they're really hurting and the doctor doesn't want to give it. I just have this pain medicine and then just give it to them. And it's dangerous. And they don't, I don't think they realize it all the time, you know, how dangerous that is. So they became especially... Yeah, well, intuitively, mm-hmm. you think you have a nurse at the bedside, right? You, you have another nurse at the bedside and you're like, hey, great, she can help. Like she, she can, you know, she can keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. The, like, you know, she knows what's going on. Uh, th- maybe this is going to be easy for me, but didn't turn out that way, it doesn't seem like. Yeah, it just seemed like her opinion about what should have been done for him was just not jibing with what the, what the medical professionals that were actually taking care of him. And that's it's as a medical professional myself who sometimes has to be, you know, at the bedside with some of my family, you you have to be the family member. You can't, you're not the nurse. You're not the, you know, whatever your profession is, you're not in that role. So they're in the hospital and you can advocate for them as a family member, but you're not their nurse. So you can't be given the medicine. You can't be overriding what the people that are taking care of them are doing. You just, you just can't. I mean, that's dangerous. They really became uh, concerned after discovering that his pain button had been hit 264 times in an eight-hour period, when at most it should have been hit 48 times. So, of course, we understand that the way PCAs work, the dispenser won't allow more pain medicine that is prescribed. And I always tell my patients that are on a PCA, hit your button as often as you, if you feel like you need to hit it, hit it. You might not get medicine when you hit it every time, but it tells me, it will tell me that you are having to hit that button more often and maybe we can adjust it. Maybe we can give you a higher dose or more frequently or give you some sort of breakthrough medication orally or something. We can, it's okay to hit the button, but if the person is sort of lethargic and 
not really capable of pushing the button. And the button's been pushed that many times and there's a family member in there, then you got to wonder who's pushing the button. And there, there is concern for that, for sure. Because even if well, it is Well, that's giving, a push every two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the math on that, like there's 460 minutes in eight hours or something. Mm-hmm. 260, I mean, it's like, it's every two minutes they're pushing that button for eight hours. That like, yeah, that, that's odd. They're just almost, yeah, almost constantly pushing the button. And it's, for one, like, wouldn't the nurse know that a PCA button wouldn't pers- wouldn't work that way? It's just, uh, maybe not. I mean, I don't know. So... When I was reading this, I was thinking she was like going, she was going to go unlock it and like change that setting or something. Oh. Like that's where my head was going as I was reading this story. Like, I was like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and it took a whole different turn. Yeah. You guys be careful when you're programming your PCAs because if you do have a family member who kind of knows what they're doing, and there are a lot of nurses out there, and you might not even realize they're a nurse. And if they're watching you and they watch closely enough and they can see the code you're putting in and see how you're programming it. They could make adjustments when you're not looking. So you do have to be careful. There's a reason why they have, you know, they're locked the way they are. Ours has to, we have to have an actual key to get into it. And then you still have to have a code to be able to make any changes. So there's really almost a double safety check there. I really don't think they would be able to maybe, well, actually, no, that's not true. They could make a a dosage change without opening it because the keypad is right there. So, yeah, we do have to be careful about that sort of thing. People are always watching. (laughs) So, this is going on. The staff is observing this and you can just, I don't know, imagine this happening where there's this back and forth between the staff and the patient, the family. And obviously, Jan is not happy with the way that her husband is being cared for. So, she's trying to do things to override this and about a couple of days after his surgery, he became unresponsive. And then she just kind of spiraled downward after that. She became inconsolable. She was very displeased with the care he was getting. She actually at one point screamed at the staff that she was going to come back with a gun and shoot everyone working on the seventh floor where her husband was. So they called the police. They did not arrest her. I understand that just saying something like that is not actually doing it. But at what point do you, you really have to wait for somebody to actually hurt someone? She made that threat and she could have followed through, but we have to wait for someone to come back and actually hurt the staff and kill people before we would then do anything, you know, to arrest her. I, I don't understand our laws sometimes. I feel like there's just not enough law. There are not enough laws in place to protect our staff members from people like this. And there's a lot of red flags with this woman as well. I mean, not only was she saying, don't give him pain medicine. And then on the other side, the 265 pushes. Now she's threatening a gun. Like, I feel like there's enough there to say, maybe we don't let her back in mm-hmm. for a while. Or, you know, like it just seems, it seems odd that they, that these red flags didn't trigger somebody to say, yeah, maybe we need to do something different. Yeah, it seemed like there were a lot of red flags. There were people concerned. There were staff members clearly looking at the situation going, this is not good. But nothing real ever happened until ultimately, of course. So shortly after that, on May 11th, Henry was moved to a palliative care floor. Jan signed a DNR. Then she starts asking for medications that will, quote, reduce his respirations. Now, you and I know that's probably like morphine or Ativan or something like that. Those are comfort care meds, and we give those to patients who are in comfort care, and there's nothing wrong with that. In 
a controlled environment where you are giving them and you're assessing their breath sounds or you're assessing, or you're assessing the respiratory rate, you don't, I don't know, there's different state state laws, okay? I live in the state of Tennessee and in the state of Tennessee, we do not have assisted suicide here. So nurses are not going to be giving medication to try to hasten someone's death, to try to help them along. That's just not something that we're going to do. We're going to try to keep them comfortable and sometimes morphine and Ativan, they're, it's not hastening their death. If anything, it's actually helping them to be more comfortable and relax and open the airway and actually lower their respiratory rate. Maybe they're breathing 36 times a minute. You can't breathe. You can't oxygenate well breathing 36 times a minute. That might, morphine might bring that down to a more comfortable, you know, 18 to 20 times a minute. And then, so a lot of people hear, oh, you're giving morphine and you're trying to kill them. Nope, absolutely not. That is not what that's about. It almost sounds like Jan was of that, you know, was in that camp of like, let's give as much morphine as we can, not trying to keep him comfortable or lower his respiratory rate as, as, to make him comfortable and help him with his oxygenation, but to literally lower his respiratory rate, you know, as low as it'll go. It's, I don't know. I mean, it almost seems that way. It's she a really, weird request too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like give him, give him meds so he breathes slower. And as a nurse, you're like, you know what this does. Mm-hmm. Like, not to lower pain or to make him feel more comfortable, literally to lower his respirations. It's a weird way to ask for something. And they explained that to her, not that they probably had to, but they did explain it to her. Nurses checked on Henry around eight o'clock this particular morning. And one of the nurses later reported that everything was fine. But another nurse claimed that she saw Jan pinching his nose. So around 8.30 a.m. on this day, an alarm sounded at the nurse's station that alerted them to an issue with Henry. And medical staff grabbed a crash cart, entered his room. They found the bed flattened, which was odd because he would have needed to be at an angle. Any healthcare professional, I don't care how, if you work at the bedside at all with people with respiratory issues, you know that the head of the bed needs to be up. They cannot breathe when they're laying down. And Jan was actually on top of her husband. He was pronounced dead at 8.30. And they claim, nurses claimed that his oxygen mask had been moved, his neck collar had been removed, and his nose was purple, and that Jan had her hands hovering over his face and neck. And she also, this is what they witnessed. She claimed she was hugging Henry because she felt like the end was near. So they, they did an autopsy the next day, but the results wouldn't come in for a while, you know, until a while later. Jan called the medical examiner the very next day on August 18th and asked, if Henry had been brain dead at the time of his death. Some people speculate that she was wanting to make sure that she made the right choice in what she did. That's, you know, of course, speculation. But, mm, I mean, why would you call the medical, medical, I don't know of anyone, Mm -hmm. I don't know that people would think to do that. Call the medical examiner? No. Yeah. You you would think somebody would be grieving. It sounds like guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like guilt was uh, coming into play there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, police questioned her after he died. She said she would never suffocate her husband. They did determine that Henry's death was a homicide by asphyxiation. His obituary was printed May 22nd, and it read, and it still reads, that he died surrounded by his loving family at at a Florida Memorial Hospital, and also that he is survived by his wife of 44 years, and that they were childhood sweethearts. I don't know. It's it's kind of hard not to interject your own opinion of this, but it, it's just a very it's very strange. Maybe he would want it that way. Who knows? It sounds like they did have a, a loving marriage for a long time, and then something obviously went really wrong toward the end. And it's really hard to speculate what 
what that was and what her intentions were. Yeah, I mean, on the on the other end, I'm thinking, well, maybe maybe this was the conversation they had at some point in their life where it was like, well, if I'm in this way, end it. And but who knows? It's hard. It's there's just so much odd, so many odd facts that pop in here mm-hmm. that it, it just a it, it the whole approach was weird. It's hard to go to the positive side. That's true. It's very true. So she was arrested and she was charged with second degree murder. Initially, she was held without bond, but then later it was changed to 250000 and she posted bond in September. She was set to appear back in court July 10th of that year, 2017. And Prudential, incidentally, took Jan and her daughter to court over his death benefit payout. But before she could make it to trial, they actually found her in May of 2017 after police performed a wellness check at her daughter's request and found her slumped over in a chair. It appeared she died of natural causes. So she just passed away on her own. It's, if you, I mean, I guess you've probably heard of this, but, you know, older couples, they've been together forever. They were, you know, were high school sweethearts, been together since they were both in their, you know, teens. And one passes away. And then very shortly after, really inexplicably, the other one just dies. And it sort of sounds like that's what happened here. She was only 61, though. I mean, that's not that, you know, that's not Yeah, that's true. But it did say natural causes. So, because when I first read the story, I was just thinking, oh, did she do something, you know, to end her own life? But you would think it would say that. But it just Mm -hmm. said, appeared she uh, died of natural causes. Yeah, you're right. 61. The older I get, the the older old gets. So, (laughs) yeah, that's not old. Right. You're like, no, 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 that's not that far (laughs) off. She's just a young whippersnapper. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> she had 40 more years of nursing in her. Exactly. So <laughs> there were no, as far as we know, there were no disciplinary actions noted against her on the Florida nurse registry. She's just listed as deceased as far as her license is, is concerned. Police are, and, and I guess that's fair. Maybe there was not an opportunity for a disciplinary hearing to happen. She didn't have a chance to really necessarily defend her actions or defend herself before a board with a, nur- a board of nursing or in a court of law. So she's gone now. I, I, don't, I don't know that that matters that much. Police are still unclear if her actions were intentional or if, if they were just the actions of a woman who wanted to end her, her husband's suffering. And like you said, if they had some sort of a deal where, you know, he just like, you know, said, do not let me lay there and suffer for weeks and weeks or months and months on end. I do not want to be that way. And she just did what she had to do. I I don't know. The medical staff at the hospital believe their actions were malicious. But, you know, it's probably something we're never going to know. Yeah. The way she interacted with the staff in the hospital seemed to push people's bias probably towards the malicious side of things. Yeah, I like the way you it's put that. Odd. Because when you have a family member who's clearly upset as she was, she may have loved her husband. She may have been grieving, people start to grieve before their loved one passes away when they know then the, that the end is near. So she was grieving, she was suffering. Um, it's very possible that she just was not handling things the way she should have. And then she just created this, this situation with the staff and the staff, maybe who knows how they were handling it or how they were perceiving this. So everything just sort of got skewed maybe in that direction, you know, of her being the... yeah. Um, a woman trying to to hasten the death of her husband when really she's just not wanting to see him suffer. It 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 is an issue that comes to mind. Obviously, suicide or you know assisted suicide, um, and whether or not 
it's something that should be. We've talked about that before on this podcast. I've been on other podcasts and talked about that, um, whether or not people should have the right uh, to decide when the end is. And if if they have a diagnosis that says, you don't have very much longer, you're going to, you're going to die, you know, ALS, uh, it's not going to be pretty. Something where you're you're going to suffer for a long period of time. And whether or not somebody should have the right to, to end that, you know, to, to choose when it happens as opposed to just having to wait it out and just suffer. It's, it's just, a, it's a difficult situation. It's a really difficult subject to talk about because people get so polarized around it. I think it's something we need to not shy away from discussing. It's, it's, it's something that I tend to try to shy away from. I don't like to talk about things that are too controversial on our podcast because I don't want to run people off. I mean, I think that it's important that we're able to keep conversations going and sort of keep the peace with people enough that we, the whole point of the podcast is not to run people off. It's to try to encourage nurses and nursing students and new nurses, new grads. That's the whole point. And if I start talking a lot about political things and voicing my opinion about this or that, I just feel like it's just going to polarize everyone. And that's not my, that's not what I want to do. It's, it's, I want to bring people together. So we choose not to. But there are learnings here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, I think it's about the conversation, but there are learnings here. So one is like advanced directives. Like Mm -hmm. if, if Henry had an advanced directive, maybe there would be different choices that occurred there. Mm -hmm. Maybe he would have been moved to palliative care faster. Maybe there were other interventions that would happen that would, you know, satisfy the wife. And so she didn't have to maybe feel that she was going to do something that way. And then what was popping in my head is self-directed suicide or, or assisted suicide is, is one side of the things, but this conversation happens for nurses when it's end of life for, for patients to withdraw care and families to withdraw care. And like the things you can potentially kind of parallel are, you know, what are the, what are ways that you would approach this differently with the wife that you can take and do that when the next time that you have an end of life discussion with family on, on a person who's near death and is on, you know, all the drips and vents and those type of things. How do you, how do you take learnings from this and approach that other situation that happens, you know, all the time for nurses in a different way? Yes. I love that you, I love that you brought that up because that is a great way for us to be able to apply that to the people that listen to this podcast, because it is it is. It does directly affect us. We have sometimes we have patients who we know are headed in one direction, and the patient is able to talk and communicate and express their own wishes. But we recognize that in maybe a day or so, they won't be able to make those decisions. It's really important to, as for us as nurses, as an advocate for the patient and the family, to help to educate them about the importance of talking about these things, not being, not shying away from it, not being afraid to say, this is something you need to think about while you're able to make those decisions instead of leaving it to your family to have to do that. What do you want? Whatever that is, it doesn't, not trying to sway them one way or another for what it is. Don't interject your own opinion about it. And people can get sometimes very opinionated about that, but let people have their own opinion. It's not about you, it's about them but help them to understand that it is important for them to make that decision while they're able to make the decision. And then if that, and if that does, if it ends up happening, the family doesn't have, they can grieve and not have to worry about making those decisions. So I like that you brought that up. That's true. Yeah. Or how could you approach this, this 
this wife's experience differently too? How could the nurse actually dig into some of the, the concerns? So, you know, tell me more about why you want to reduce his respirations and mm-hmm. be like, be the patient advocate and try and get some information because then you can assess, well, maybe she's asking for something and she doesn't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it said what type of nurse she was, but, you know, maybe she doesn't know. And we assume because she's a nurse that she knows everything about what's going on, but, she, you know, it doesn't. Or, you know, digging into the, the button pushing, you know, you know so it, I noticed that there's 265 pushes you know, what's going on here? Like, and try and actually be that investigator to advocate for the patient. I think there's some pieces there that we could probably learn as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's, I love the wisdom that's behind, you know, the words that you just said, because it is so true that if you, if, the, if maybe, maybe if the nurses had taken the opportunity to discuss that with a family, instead of seeing her as an adversary or someone who's trying to do something malicious, bring her into the conversation, talk to her, what's going on here? What are you trying to accomplish by doing this? What are you thinking his goals are? And talking about his goals and what can we, how can we kind of work together to make everyone happy, you know, instead of everybody on opposite sides. And then put it on the whiteboard. Put it on the whiteboard for crying out loud. Probably. (laughs) Honestly, that probably would have solved everything if they had just filled out that whiteboard from the beginning. (laughs) Uh, I don't mean to make light of someone's death and murder, but at the same time, there's a nurse joke in there somewhere. And that's, you know, I, I always say that that's kind of a coping mechanism of mine is to just kind of like laugh about stuff and I'll laugh at like totally inappropriate times. It's just my way of just going, oh gosh, it's it's getting way too serious. I can't deal with that. I'll just laugh. And, you know, it's, I just usually have to just be like, I'm so sorry. This isn't funny. I don't know why I'm laughing right now. I don't mean to be smiling. I'm sorry. I would be one of those people. If you're, I don't know if you've ever seen like an interview with somebody who like be, is being accused of something and they're like smiling all through the interview. And then later on, people are like, he was smiling all through the interview. There's no, and then I'm just like, oh my God, that would be me. I would be so in trouble. If I, <laughs> gosh, like, I'm not guilty. I just know what's happening here. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, yeah, I'm done for. I'm done for. If, if there's ever any suspicion of anything I've ever done, they're going to look at all my search history and see all of the stupid search searches that I do trying to find stories. And then my facial expressions are going to just completely cruise. They're going to, I'm crucified. I'm done. I'm done. So. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, Tina, it looks like every single week you look up <laughs> nurses that have done something really bad. I know. <laughs> uh, what are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that brings us to our good nurse story. So the, I always, you know, the good nurse story is not necessarily going to be something that is is all happy and sunshine and roses because it is going to be about a nurse who sometimes made a sacrifice. And so it's going to maybe be somewhat sad, but I want to highlight these people. So I say that because it is it is a sad story, uh, what happened to this nurse, but I want to tell her story. I think she deserves to have her story told. This is a story from CNN. There was a, a home health nurse in Louisiana She's being called a hero. Incidentally, uh, there's a, a campaign that Trusted Health is going to be doing, I guess, soon, uh, talking about heroes. You guys are kind of addressing the fact that everybody's just decided that nurses are heroes. It's a little annoying for some nurses, but there are some people who are heroes because she literally did do what a hero does, and that is to go and put, she put herself in harm's way when she didn't have to, and to save someone else who who was vulnerable. Her patient. Her horse's home health, it's the patient's home. Her patient was a paraplegic and there was a house fire and she 
was trying to save the patient, her paraplegic patient from the house fire, and she actually was killed herself. So the Delhi Fire Department in Louisiana responded to a call of people trapped in the house. And the nurse, who was 64-year-old Gwendolyn Thuse, it's spelled T-H-E-U-S, and then the homeowner, 71-year-old paraplegic woman, they were pulled from a bedroom. Authorities administered CPR, but the homeowner was revived. Mrs. Thuse her valiant efforts to put her patient's life before her own are both admirable and heartbreaking is what the fire marshal said. You know, I'm not surprised really to, to find that someone, that, that this nurse did this because this is, this is at the heart of who nurses really are. We, we do the story, the bad nurse story on here and talk about nurses who, you know, do really weird things. And I always say there are bad people in this world and sometimes they make it into the healthcare field, unfortunately, but the vast majority of them are amazing people who would do something just like this. And um, it's just, it's sad that it happened, but I'm so proud of this nurse, Gwendolyn, for doing this and, you know, just not even thinking about trying to save her own life. She was just trying to save the life of the person that lived there and she literally sacrificed her own life. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point at the beginning, which is this is this is the the definition of a hero, putting yourself in harm's way to save someone um, besides yourself and to do it in a valiant kind of heroic effort. Um, when it becomes a chronic thing, that's where the hero piece breaks down. But I think this is a great example of, you know, running towards the fire. Uh, and I know so many of our colleagues do that every day. Um, no matter what specialty you are, you run to the code, you know, you run to the fire, you run to the alarm um, while others are running away from it. And uh, I think it's just a great story that highlights the core of what nursing is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, you know, this it's so sad. She tried multiple times to wheel the woman's bed out of the room, but was unsuccessful. And she pulled her out of the bed, attempted to push her out the window, out of the window to escape the fire. And then she just succumbed to smoke inhalation. And the neighbors attempted to rescue um, them from the bedroom window as well, but weren't able to. And then fire, by the time firefighters got there, they were able to revive the homeowner and flew her to a burn unit in Mississippi, but they were not able to, unfortunately, to save the nurse. So that's really sad. But at the same time, like I said, I like to honor people like this because, you know, tell their stories. It, it She is a hero and I am very proud of her. And it's not exactly, like I said, sunshine and roses, but at the same time, it's exactly who nurse, it's it's the epitome of who nurses are and how they 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 will definitely sacrifice themselves to save other people. Yep. And she and she saved him. That that person made a full recovery, yes. it looks like. That's exactly right. So I guess that brings us to our satire news segment. Thank you all so much for sticking around for our new nursing news segment. Not Necessarily Nursing News is brought to you by Live Well Health. They understand that health insurance as a nurse is complicated, especially if you're a travel nurse or working PRN. Just go to goodnursebadnurse.com today and click the Live Well Health link to let them show you all your options for health insurance and find a plan catered to your needs and budget. That's goodnursebadnurse.com and click the Live Well Health link. So this week's, like as I said earlier, this week's article is entitled Research Evidence Links Patient Outcomes to Whiteboards. I've talked before on here about how nursing is a profession because we use evidence-based practice to drive what we do and how we take care of our patients. That's what's part of makes us a profession. We do our own research. We don't need someone else telling us what to do. We 
can do that research and find out what is best practice. And so apparently, as I said, this is satire, but apparently (laughs) there is a new study in the Journal of Pedantic Nursing's latest issue. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, sometimes I'll be coming across uh, an article like this or some something, and I'll come across a word like the word pedantic, and I'm like, what, what does that word mean? So not to insult anyone's intelligence, but I thought I would just let everyone know what that word meant, just in case. So pedantic is an insulting word used to describe someone who annoys others by correcting small errors, caring too much about minor details, or emphasizing their own expertise, especially in some narrow or boring subject matter. And that's from Merriam-Webster. So that's, and it's an unfortunate name really for this association. But this new study did come from the Journal of Pedantic Nursing's latest issue. And it found that the more whiteboards that were filled out in hospitals, the less complications after surgeries that led to death. The study also found that the utilization of whiteboards was linked with nurses being more likely to follow through on essential interventions and stay focused on the most relevant and meaningful tasks. Nurse Wendy Academia, PhD, MSN, BSN, RN, JASS of the National University School of Trivial Nursing reported findings from a study that surveyed staff nurses and analyzed outcomes for patients between the ages of 85 and 90. Well, that's a pretty narrow age range there, who underwent general surgical procedures. The researchers reported that of the 350 patient surveys, 99.9% experienced a major complication and 50% died within 30 days of admission. Gosh. It's not good outcomes at all, is it? <laughs> wow. I love everything about this. I hope. They, <laughs> I really hope they found a way, though, you know, to uh, separate all the data. The researchers found that after adjusting for insignificant characteristics, such as nurse-to-patient ratios, support staff, functioning equipment, et cetera. Oh, good. I'm glad they got all that insignificant stuff out of the way. Blank whiteboards were associated with an astronomical increase in the likelihood of dying within 30 days. For example... A fully filled out whiteboard, complete with NANDA nursing diagnoses, was shown to have a 1% mortality rate. And they're pretty sure that 1% was from a nurse who was drinking water at the nurse's station. <laughs> the study also showed the study also showed the incidence of nurses writing the correct date on the whiteboard each morning as is directly correlated to their patients knowing the correct day. Oh man, this is so great. I'm going to write a whole book like this. I know. (laughs) The data doesn't lie. So this Dr. Academia, she is so intelligent. Can you just uh, feel it? I am so thankful to have her in this position, just leading the rest of us. The data doesn't lie. There is just no denying that the higher percentage of the whiteboard that is filled out, the better the chance of our patients knowing what day it is, Dr. Academia pleaded. A male nurse from Kalamazoo, Michigan, spoke to the importance of updating the whiteboard each shift. I forgot to do this one morning, he lamented, and the whole day my patient's family referred to me as Nurse Linda. I won't lie, I kind of liked it, even though it led to some confusion. (laughs) Uh. Dr. Academia was asked to respond to the complaint from nurses who say they just don't have time to fill out their whiteboards in this time of understaffing and higher acuity patients. It's important to know how to prioritize, explained Dr. Academia. When you have a light patient load, you likely have time to do full assessment, medicate your patient on time, and communicate acute changes to provider. But when you have a larger patient load, you need to decide what takes priority. This study proves what we have suspected all along, and that is a good nurse always fills out her whiteboard completely, no matter what. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love it. I love every (laughs) ounce of this story, especially the like the (laughs) doctor academia. I was just thinking, what are the what does J A S S stand for? And the only thing that came to my head was jackass. So, 
<laughs> okay, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to admit, so sometimes we take these articles from Gomer blog, but I wrote this one and David from Nurse, the Nurse Papa podcast, who wrote the book, uh, Nurse Papa, it's going to be published soon. He helped me a little bit. He tweet, helped me tweak it. One of the things, came, I wrote most of it, but one of the things that he said was the one about the Kalamazoo nurse from Michigan and how, how the, the patients kept calling Nurse Linda all day. <laughs> <laughs> so that was so funny. I love it, but the the thing is that I love the this I love satire because it 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 kind of helps you laugh, which of course I love to laugh, and that's how that's my coping mechanism. So of course I'm going to love this. It helps me to sort of laugh at something that frustrates me to no end, and that is the fact that administration will focus on something that is so silly, like whiteboards, drinks at the nurses' station, that sort of thing, when they're are so many more issues like nurse to patient ratios that need to be addressed. I mean, I, to me, if, you're, if your nurse to patient ratios are what they're supposed to be and you have equipment, functioning equipment, and all of the things are there the way they're supposed to be, then that's the time to then focus on whiteboards. And you know, I could see why they're helpful. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I try to put my name on there and the date and that sort of thing. I do try to. It's not my number one priority because I, if especially if I have three patients in an ICU, I'm just doing the best I can to try to get those more important things done. Yeah, we just had this conversation today. We are doing a training for our, um, the clinical success partners at Trusted, which are the nurses that work directly with our nurses that are out on contract travel nurses. And we were doing a training with a, a past board president, Arizona uh, State Board of Nursing president, and a, a past hospital administrator executive um, to talk about exactly this kind of stuff. And one of the questions that came up was, hey, you know, we have nurses call us and say, hey, the patient acuity is too high, I can't do it, or they're floating me to a unit where I don't feel comfortable. And we asked, we asked the two facilitators for advice, and they said, number one, you can refuse the patient, that's, or you can refuse that assignment, but that's not always... The, you know, that's not always possible. That's not always the best way to go. And if you can't outright refuse the assignment, then you, you have to negotiate what will and will not be done and do that up front. Say, I can't fill out that whiteboard. If you want me to do this thing, I can't do it and provide safe care and have that negotiation up front. So I think that, that was exactly what you're talking about. You know, I think we we get hone in on these tasks, these things that we think need to get done, these easy to check boxes of the whiteboard or the whatever four hour vitals or whatever it is. Um, when actually, as a professional, we should be negotiating what we think safe care looks like. And then we're in situations where you can't do it all, then you need to start prioritizing. Whiteboards would be the first thing to go. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's like in a perfect world, if you were able to have everything the way you want it and all of your supplies there that you need to be able to do your job and you're not having to run all over the unit looking for help to pull your patient up uh, safely and rather than breaking your back trying to do it yourself, um, turn your patient every two hours so that they don't get a pressure ulcer. You're doing literally everything you possibly can to try to protect your patient, advocate for your patient and notify the provider's of what is going on with the patient. Those are your priorities. They have to be titrating your drips. That that has to be your priority. And so if you can't, you almost have to work backwards and just go, well, these are my priorities. If I, I, I can't worry about that right now, especially if I've been handed an assignment like three patients, some of that stuff has to drop off. And it's like, you would think that the administration would understand that. But in this, what, what's happened over the past year, there was a time when JCO kind of was like, well, we're not going to be making visits to the hospitals. And so 
some of the hospitals in the country, and I know that because I've talked to people all over, some of the hospitals were just sort of like lightening up a little bit, not saying as much about things. And obviously, it's things that have to do with patient care, that's different. No, Nobody's mm-hmm. going to sacrifice that, but you're going to do the best you can. But it, drinks at the nurse's station, whiteboards, that sort of thing. And so now, Jayco's coming back around, and all of a sudden, whiteboards are important, but the staffing issue hasn't been solved. So the right. nurses are just like, wait a minute, why am I, do, do I care about this still? Because I'm still looking around and everybody's tripled and there, there's no help, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't even know. Are whiteboards part of the Joint Commission survey? That I don't. The, know. I, I, I don't know if they are. I mean, I, I when I whenever I've been in meetings about whiteboards, it's always been about HCAP scores mm. and, and patient satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And so you want to get those, you know, those those HCAP scores up so you can get higher reimbursement value rates and things on different yeah. things. But yeah, but but I mean, yeah, it's like at the end of the day, it's patient care that matters and nothing else matters. And so, yeah, prioritizing things. It, it's funny. We were, we were talking about Joint Commission the other day too. They're actually, Joint Commission, I just filled out a survey for them. They're trying to change some of their metrics to be more sensitive to staffing and, and the environmental factors at a hospital that impact the ability to follow some of the standards that they have. And so maybe there will be a day where they stop harping on water at the nurse's station and whiteboards and focus in on the context of care, the, the environment, and and assessing that and, and not giving leeway, but understanding that mm-hmm. you can't do it in situations where you're completely understaffed and, and things are kind of hitting the fan. Yeah. Water at the nurse's station is something I, I'm going to probably be addressing more. In, well, I am going to be addressing more in the future because that is the biggest pet peeve of mine. It is so ridiculous. It's an OSHA issue. It is about, it's supposed to be about protecting this the employee, which is crazy because instead of protecting the employee from maybe E. coli getting into your water because someone who nobody's going to do this, but someone could possibly put urine specimen on the same counter where you set your water. It's just so ridiculous that they are using the same rules that they apply to people working around hazardous chemicals. And so uh, that's going to probably be a soapbox for the future that I'm going to definitely get on and harp on because it's not, it's a safety issue for the, for the employee to not have water at the nurse's station because our own health and kidney stones and all kinds of reasons. So, and meanwhile, the patients, you know, has, <laughs> is eating hospital meals next to their like urinal. infection and their <laughs> urinal and their like IVs that are barely taped on. And, <laughs> but that's okay. They, they need their food, but the nurses that don't even get a break sometimes, uh, and having kidney stones and kidney failure can't, crazy, have, crazy. can't have water in a Yeti that literally can be dropped from a helicopter, know. you know, but it, God forbid it, you know, you open it at the wrong time when your friends like changing the urine specimen to a bottle like come on it's stupid <laughs> it is it's crazy <laughs> well damn maybe you that's so a nurse much. innovation maybe that's a nurse innovation oh, build, that's build true. The, the osha compliant water bottle the osha compliant <laughs> well there's no telling what that thing would look like good lord <laughs> that sounds like another not necessarily the nursing news satire article for the future <laughs> I love it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming back on this show and agreeing to uh, do another show. This has been fun. This has been a great show and I just appreciate you so much. Yeah, happy to do it. And uh, yeah, always look forward to the stories and and chit-chat. Well, you guys know that you can, if you need to give me feedback, you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com or you can find me at goodnursebadnurse on Instagram or GMBM Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. 
And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. Yes, Charlie agrees. <laughs> <laughs> Should you hear my talk? Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs>